Hello and welcome to The Boss Podcast. I am Kirk Bailey. This is episode 101 and this week we hear from product guru Bruce McCarthy as he discusses impossible outcomes. The Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. In this session, Bruce will walk you through the cultures and practices of organisations like Netflix and Tesla and help you think about how to tackle the big, scary challenges in your organisation with a few examples where the right vision, team and plan have led to winning formulas. Happy listening. I think a lot of people with everything that's going on are feeling like everything seems impossible or at least extremely difficult and they're not sure what's going to happen with their business. They're not sure where things are going um, in the future or how things are going to work out. Um, But this situation is really not unique. Companies have been facing seemingly impossible odds, seemingly insurmountable obstacles all along. In context, maybe a different context, I think I'd like to talk a little bit about how companies have faced impossible situations before and come out on top. In 2015, Consumer Reports reviewed the then new Tesla P85D, and um, it scored 103 points on Consumer Reports' 100-point scale, a seemingly impossible um, score. It actually broke their rating system, which they had to revise in order to take into account this car that was, according to their scale, of unprecedented value and quality. This seemingly impossible outcome um, has not only uh, given us a terrific car, um, but Tesla's um, Model S and Model X and Model 3 have single-handedly driven a transformation in the auto industry. All the automakers, even my favorite one, Porsche, are now hard at work on electric vehicles. And that, I think, is kind of ironic given that 20 years ago, GM actually was a pioneer in this space. They had, I don't know if anybody remembers this car, but they had a car called the EV1 back in 1996. Uh, It was out for about three years. It was leased to a thousand consumers in California for that time. Um, And after three years, though, GM repossessed all the cars over the objections of the very satisfied, happy owners and crushed them, all of them, except for about 40 that went to museums. They concluded that it was a non-viable business, that it was impossible to make a business out of electric vehicles. What's really interesting about that is that actually the technology, the essential technologies for an electric car have not advanced much since the time of the EV1. The EV1 had 200 plus miles of range. It charged overnight from ordinary household current. Electric motors are, they've been around for over a hundred years. They're very simple um, in design. The EV1 was really not much less advanced than a Tesla. Uh, At least this would be approximately the size of a Model 3. Um, The electronics are fancier in a Tesla and so on. But in terms of the basic um, 
capabilities of the car, it was pretty much a Tesla, but 20 years prior. And yet GM decided it was impossible um, as, as a business. One wonders if maybe they were simply not really all that motivated. Um, if maybe they were just not interested in transforming the world, um, but were simply responding to pressure from regulators. Well, now the world is transforming and we have this, we have this Chevy Bolt and we have the Nissan Leaf and we have every manufacturer seemingly pursuing electric cars. Now suddenly it's possible because someone did it. And I think that's really the lesson. Um, and it turns out that this story is not unique. Um, Fred Smith, the founder of Federal Express, uh, described his model for an overnight uh, delivery service that was national in nature in his term paper in his economics class while he was in graduate school. And he got a C on it because the professor said that although it was a great idea and it was well described and well worked out, um, he couldn't give it better than a C because it was not feasible to have overnight delivery nationally. Now, of course, they have overnight delivery globally. Similarly, Apple, everyone said Apple was dead back in the day. My stockbroker made me sell the stock back in the 90s. Uh, they went from a declining 4% market share in the PC business to reportedly about 80% of all the profits in the smartphone business uh, with one product, the iPhone. A seemingly impossible recovery. Porsche, my favorite manufacturer, once again, back in the 80s, was facing uh, record declines in sales, uh, their first unprofitable year since the, um, since the war and the cancellation of the 9-11. But they uncanceled the 9-11. They won Le Mans an unprecedented seven years in a row, and they became the world's most profitable automaker. So they were so successful that uh, in their turnaround that in 2008, they came this close to buying now parent VW, a car maker with 60 times their volume. And I can't help but throw in one more example from my personal um, background. Net Prospects was a startup that I worked for um, for three years. We built the largest, most accurate, most deliverable B2B uh, marketing database uh, of its day, and we gave it away for free to our customers. And yet somehow we grew the company by uh, uh, 100% for six years in a row. Impossible? No, we made it possible by changing the game, by rethinking our approach to, um, to, to business, by not asking ourselves, what could we do, but what must we do to uh, make our visions come true? These companies that I've just talked about, these four or five companies, they're not alone either. We see news of new unicorns, it seems, every day. Some of them are new, some of them are not. Um, Net Prospects is you know, 10 years in the past, and Porsche, um, their uh, resurgence is 30 years in the past. Um, I don't think it's about something that's brand new to the 21st century. I think, though, it's about 
attitude. I think it's about culture. It's about um, not saying that things are impossible. It's about saying that they're possible until someone figures out how to, they're impossible until someone figures out how to make them possible because they have to. Now, a lot of executives that I talk to, they feel like they're working hard. They feel like they're sweating. They feel like they've hired um, terrific athletes and they're working them as hard as they possibly can. And yet somehow they feel like all of this sweat is not moving them forward. They feel a little bit like they're working hard, but it's a stationary bike. So they're actually not going anywhere. They say, well, we see all of these successful companies, all these moonshots. Uh, what are they doing? What, what are the tools? What are the frameworks? What are the structures um, that they're putting together? And they hear, okay, well, you gotta be agile. You gotta be lean. You gotta be customer driven. You gotta use safe. You gotta uh, figure out your value proposition. You gotta go digital native. You gotta use the SVPG model. They hear all of this stuff, DevOps, Spotify, whatever, and they adopt these things, but nothing changes. They adopt these things and yet they feel still like they are treading water, like they are spinning hard, but not getting anywhere. And so they're asking themselves, I think, how does the impossible, the seemingly impossible, the previously impossible become possible for, for many of these companies? I think that's a good question. I had a conversation about this with one of my favorite people, Gibson Biddle, former VP of product for, um, Net, for uh, Netflix. Um, I co-led a, um, a strategy workshop with him in Lisbon, and he's a genius for strategy. So maybe the answer is product strategy, but I don't think so. Because if you dig a little bit deeper into the success of Netflix, yeah, strategy plays a part, but what they say is their real differentiator, is their culture. Their definition of culture, there's a deck on SlideShare that you can look up, is what gives them the best chance of continuous success for many generations of technology and people and probably strategy as well. It's not about any particular tech. It's not about a particular talented person. Uh, it's about the underlying culture. I think having studied some of these companies, having talked to the people that work there, having worked at uh, or closely with many of these companies myself, I think there is an essential recipe, a set of ingredients for the proper product-led culture um, that makes the difference that between impossible and possible. And it's got three, three main ingredients. First, you've got to have a compelling vision of a future world where amazing people do awesome things. It's focused, your vision for the future needs to be focused on people, your people and customers as well. Second, you need obviously a plan to get there. And I'm going to dig into some details on each one of these three. That plan is not a detailed blueprint. It's not a set of features. It is a ladder of opportunities to deliver value that one step at a time build toward that future that you envision. And then you've got to have the right team. And this definition of a team, a group of people dedicated to reaching that vision is really important. You notice I didn't say high performing or talented or efficient. Um, it's about dedication, dedication to the mission, to reaching that vision. Let me dig into each one of these three and maybe you'll see what I mean. So that first um, ingredient 
is that vision of a future world where amazing people do amazing things. Um, I want to go back in time, actually, and talk about one of those unicorns. Now, we forget about BlackBerry because they feel like a dead company at this point. But back in the day, actually, they were the darling of Wall Street, um, of, of investors. Um, they were growing like, uh, like a weed, and they had taken over corporate America. Everybody was on their Crackberry, right? Everybody was on their Crackberry. It even became a fashion status symbol outside of business. There's Justin Bieber giving his trademark peace sign with his BlackBerry in his hand. And BlackBerry became more than just a productivity device. It became a status symbol and a symbol of success and power. And it made people feel privileged to be able to have one. It made them feel like they were part of a um, of a of a of an elite group of people. Now, here's the uh, co-CEO of RIM. Back in 2003, he felt very strongly that, uh, according to a quote I read in an article uh, interviewing him, corporate users will reject camera phones. He thought, okay, our customer is the corporate user, and our customer just wants access to corporate email, right? So what do they want with a camera phone? What do they want with a phone that has a really big uh, screen for browsing content on the internet? What do they want with a music player or headphones? I think they forgot that they were um, not just a producer of mobile phones, they were a producer of awesomeness for their customer. Everybody says, oh, you know, it was the iPhone that killed BlackBerry. Uh, they failed to anticipate the consumerization of IT. I think that's wrong. They actually benefited from the consumerization of IT when people said, I gotta have a BlackBerry. Um, when I was a young product manager, I petitioned my boss um, to get a BlackBerry on the company dime. And I had to wait for the new fiscal year because there needed to be a budget. There was an allocation. Uh, of limited supply of plans for employees. And so I waited, waited my time. Three years later, when the iPhone 3G came out, I shelled out my own money to buy a phone to put on the corporate network because it had become um, the it device. I think what's going on here is that what BlackBerry forgot was that the ultimate job to be done, if you will, is to, as a customer, elevate me make me powerful, make me awesome, and let me into your elite group. This is, this is a, um, an MP3 player. It's very cool. It's from Philips and it's got bright colors. It's got a, an armband built into it and stripes on it. It's got these swoopy earbuds built right into it. It's very functional. It's kind of cool looking. The product is cool, but I think they too have missed the boat. When you think about how Apple thinks about products, they don't think about making a cool product. They think about making cool customers. They think about making the customer cool. They think about initiating the customer into their tribe. And people often buy products as a way of symbolizing um, their desire to join the tribe, the Blackberry tribe, the Crackberry tribe, and later on the, uh, the iPhone. Um, tribe. Now, that's me telling you about um, 
what your vision needs to be like. Your vision needs to be human-centered. It needs to be a vision of making it possible for awesome people to do amazing things. How do you operationalize that in your business today? Well, one key tool that Amazon, another one of these um, highly successful uh, companies doing things nobody had done before, is their habit of working backwards from the vision that they foresee in the world. They have this uh, practice they call writing a future press release, or they call it a PR FAQ, um, an FAQ for the future. And these are the components that are supposed to be in it. They literally write a press release, a fictitious one, not for when the product is going to be released, but from when the product is going to be successful and ubiquitous and changing things in the world. They describe the problem it will solve, the solution and how it solves that problem. They even have fake quotes and a fake how to get started and how to buy the thing and all the FAQs so that they work out a pretty detailed vision of what they think that future, maybe in five years, is going to look like. And that is critical because what it does is it forces them to think through the problems that they need to solve along the way in order to make that future vision possible. They ask themselves not, what could we do from where we are today incrementally, but what must we do to make our future vision a reality? That's the kind of rethinking that makes previously impossible things possible. It doesn't, instead of shying away from the high, hard problems and saying, well, we could add this and this and this to our existing product line, that would be easy. It forces you to face the hard problems and see if it's possible to do them where maybe nobody else has done them before. All right, I'm gonna talk about the second uh, component, the second ingredient, and that is to have a plan. Um, and I don't mean, you know me, I'm the roadmap guy. Um, I don't mean a detailed set of deliverables or specifications, um, but a plan that shows the major steps, the major problems you're going to um, solve along the way um, and, and how you're gonna deliver value at every step. And I'm gonna tell you a story about a company that actually failed to use that approach. Um, there was a um, National Geographic uh, movie a documentary recently about the what they called um, the most influential Silicon Valley company that no one's ever heard of, called General Magic. General Magic was founded in the late 80s with uh, by a bunch of executives who worked on the Macintosh at Apple. And they described in 1989, this is a blueprint from 1989, the smartphone. They essentially described what is today um, the iPhone um, in 1989. You can look at the diagram here. It's a uh, bar-shaped phone. It's got a touch screen that is almost the full front surface of the device. It is completely wireless. And look, you can even see a bunch of icons of apps on the touch screen. They described what was not shipped in the form of the iPhone until 2007 in 1989. They had it right. They knew what the future looked like. Unfortunately, they went into the lab for five years and didn't ship anything during all of that time. They put together a bunch of money. They actually went public based on the ideas without having a product. They put together a partnership with Sony, with Motorola, with AT&T. Um, 
And unfortunately, they were a little bit ahead of uh, both the technology and demand with this advice, the Magic Link, when it finally came out in 1994, and no one bought it. I think that the mistake that they made was that they spent too long in the lab trying to leap all the way to their final vision. Not only could they not get there in one step, this is hardly what they drew in 1989, um, but they didn't deliver anything of value along the way. This thing, they did ship it, it sold you know, to a few friends and family and nothing else. Apple learned from that mistake and actually got eventually to the iPhone, eventually to their vision, but they got there in a lot of small incremental steps, each one of which delivered value. They started with the iPod. The iPod, if you think about it, it was a wireless device, although it wasn't connected to, the, to Wi-Fi even at first. You had to plug it in to sync it with music. It only did one thing, played songs, a thousand songs in your pocket. Um, it had a black and white screen. Uh, but then they gradually iterated on that and added capability. They added a color screen. They added downloadable games and apps. They um, added Wi-Fi capability. They added a touch screen that became the iPod Touch. And from there, it was a much, much smaller leap, both in terms of the technology and in terms of market readiness and in terms of the, even the network's readiness, AT&T, for example, for, um, for the iPhone. When the iPhone came out, it felt inevitable. It felt like the uh, culmination of all the steps that had gone before. I'll bet that the guys at Apple, since they all talked, had seen the general magic blueprints. And when they announced the iPhone, it sounded like some brilliant um, thought that had dropped out of Steve Jobs' brain the year before, and they went into um, rapid development mode. But I'll bet that wasn't it at all. I'll bet it was the vision all along that they got there step-by-step step, delivering value at every point, delivering something to sell that people wanted that did something for them at every point. And Apple's not the only company to do this. I don't know um, how many of you have seen Elon Musk's secret master plan for, um, for Tesla. It's been out on the web for over 10 years. The secret master plan is basically very simple create a low volume car, which would necessarily be expensive. Use that money to develop a medium volume car at a lower price. This was the Model S. Use that money to create an affordable high volume car, the Model 3. And here we are today. Each step builds on the other. Each step is a prerequisite for the one before, and each step provides something of value that they can sell to their chosen market, and it's working. Look at the volume of the Tesla Model 3. Despite all of their um, throws of trying to get up to volume a year or two ago, they got there. The, uh, the secret master plan, not so secret, it's been on their website all this time, is actually working. So that, that in my mind, is, is a proper roadmap, is a proper, um, a proper plan. Describe the problems that you want to um, that you want to solve as you go. Dream big, but get there in small steps. Um, I'm actually going to be running a um, a masterclass in product road mapping along these lines, uh, starting later this week. So, um, Mark, don't forget to let people sign up for that um, at the end of this session. 
if we're going to do a roadmap properly, I'll give one example today. Um, it's got to be a list of those problems that we're going to solve one step at a time to achieve our, um, our ultimate vision. Here's a roadmap in a simple tool, Trello, for a company called Vempathy that makes a handheld, um, it makes a uh, software for using your handheld device to understand your emotional reactions as you watch a video or a demo or go through a, an app or a game in order to do usability testing with real-time um, reaction data. And each one of these cards um, in this Trello roadmap is a problem to solve. And each one is described exactly that way. Participant recruiting for research studies. This is hard for people. So the problem is described, the desired outcome for the user is described, and three different ideas about how they might solve that problem, each of which must be tested and evaluated for whether it is effectively solving the problem before we can call this part of the roadmap done. That's the right way to think about your plan if you want to achieve your vision. It's not about just shipping a bunch of features. It's about solving the problem so that your awesome customers can do amazing things. Now, if you're going to do that, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the team because that's the third ingredient. And that um, I have a very strong uh, opinion about how teams need to be put together in a product-led culture in order to execute on the plan, in order to achieve um, your vision. I'll give you an example first. Um, my friend and co-author, Evan Ryan, works at Wayfair. He's in charge of the team that makes all the product images for Wayfair, the online home goods um, retailer, uh, furnishings um, retailer. They have all of the pictures on the website, on their mobile apps for couches and artwork and draperies, et cetera, all the home, home furnishings. And their job is to make the imagery as effective as possible. He has a team of product managers, designers, technology people, data analysts, et cetera, um, a fairly large team. Um, what's really interesting, though, is that they aren't measured by how many images do they produce or the quality of the images or even outcomes like um, engagement with the images. Evan's team's success is measured by um, business outcomes like add to cart ratios and conversion rates and return rates, uh, especially where the returns are because the product didn't seem as advertised and even um, ratings, uh, which could be uh, similarly interpreted. They are measured on the business outcomes that they drive. And so everything that they do is an experiment, a tweak, an improvement to try to improve those business metrics. Evan's title in Wayfair is general manager. He's the general manager of the imagery business within Wayfair. And his peers are the general managers of merchandise categories like armchairs and couches and things like that, um, who are also measured on business outcomes. Now, Evan is a product guy like me, but there is this new role that is emerging of a general manager that, that, grow, that has grown out of product management. And I, I think if we look at teams and we look at their work, the very simplest organizational structure that many organizations start off with is the work team. The, uh, the team consists of experts who deliver work 
Um, let's say it's the database team or the front end dev team or the marketing team for that matter. And the measure of their success is that their assignments, their tickets, maybe in JIRA are done. They're checked off and they do them efficiently and effectively. And those kinds of teams are led by the experts in that discipline, right? The front end dev team is led by the most experienced front end developer. But if we ask ourselves, why are we actually doing this work? Usually it's because there is something we need to deliver. Uh, project teams, they deliver features or other changes to our products, our websites, our, our marketing channels. And the measure of success there is that the features are actually shipped on time and on budget. And that's a good, uh, good role for a project manager to, uh, to, to lead. But if we ask ourselves, why are we doing this project? Why are we shipping these additional features or changes to our product? Well, we have a product that is supposed to make customers happy and successful and solve their problems. So the measure of success for a product should be not we did the work, well, we gotta do the work, but not just that. Not we delivered the features, at least not just that, but we made the customers happy. We made the customers successful. Some measure of outcome for the customer, like their productivity rather than our productivity. And that kind of team is best led by a product manager who can get to know the customer and how the customer views success and can try to measure whether the customer is being successful because of the product. There's one more layer to this though. If we keep on building out this Russian nesting doll, um, why do we have this product and why do we want to make our customers successful? It's because we wanna drive an outcome for the company. We wanna we want to solve a business problem like add to cart rates or conversion rates. And that's what Evan's team is doing at Wayfair. They solve business problems. They are an outcome team. And they are successful when those business objectives are actually met. And this new role is called a general manager. There are lots of companies out there doing this. It's not just Wayfair. HubSpot has basically the same sort of structure. I know two people, former VPs of product, who are now general managers of product lines at HubSpot. And the only difference between their old role and their new one is that they now have profit and loss responsibility along with product responsibility. Now, this might sound like a kind of a broader than usual definition of product. Um, isn't a product just the thing, you know, the, the device or the software that runs on the device? Well, no, Radica Dutt says your product is a vehicle for creating change in the world. It creates change for the customer. And if successful, it creates positive change for your business as well. And that's gotta be the definition ultimately of success is you bring together all the work, all the features, all the products, and you make the customer successful and you make your business successful as a consequence. My favorite example of this is this company, tiny Finnish company called Supercell. Um, they have been called the fastest growing games company in the world by their investors. Their investors who also invested in Uber and Facebook and who should know what fast growth looks like. What's really interesting about how they operate is that um, all of their games are produced by teams of five to seven people and no more. And those teams are self-organizing, they come together and they propose a game. The only 
only rule they have, the only success criterion they have is make a successful game. And all they have to do is convince themselves that they have a good idea for a game, and then they can pitch it to CEO Ilka Pananen. Ilka calls himself the weakest CEO in the world because he never says no to any of those proposals. And it's just a formality, but it, it's a forcing function to get the team to actually get their thinking together to, um, to come up with a coherent proposal. He says yes, and the team starts. Now, they start developing a game, and when they get it to the point that they are convinced that it's a great game and that it's a lot of fun and that people will want to play it, they allow the rest of the company to play it and have access to it. And if the company believes at some point that it has gotten to the point where it's great fun and lots of people are gonna to wanna to play it, then they release it, not worldwide, but in the Canadian app store first. And if it does well with Canadians, who are apparently the canaries in the coal mine for the rest of the world, um, then it gets released worldwide. These guys built Clash of Clans, Clash Royale, Boom Beach, some of the most successful mobile games of all time. And they got sold for $10 billion to some Chinese investors uh, a few years ago. That, that is a microcosm of owning the success of, of a business within a business, of thinking of your product as an outcome that needs to happen for your customer who's gonna have fun. Ilka says you've gotta remember the fun aspect um, and your business where you're gonna drive wild, unprecedented levels of growth um, for your business. Now, maybe all of this sounds like science fiction to you. Maybe this all sounds like, well, that's great for big successful companies like Apple or Porsche um, or for high tech um, companies in Finland. But although many of these companies started off um, really small, um, but I want you to focus on making your teams um, as amazing so that they can do as awesome things as your customers um, as well. Most companies I find, they, they, they work on a, a process that's kind of like this. It's like collect a million ideas, spread your resources over probably too many of them, ship, ship, ship as fast as possible, and then repeat, right? They do this because they're worried about falling behind. They look at the big successful companies like Supercell, um, like Tesla, and they say, God, these guys are moving so fast. We need to keep up. We don't have time to do anything but just ship the next thing, ship the next thing, ship the next thing. And when I say to them, no, you should probably give your teams more autonomy to do a little upfront research on what uh, the customer actually wants, and put something small out there and iterate on it, they say, well, this process takes too long already and now you want me to add more steps to it? Well, that's not gonna work. That, um, that just sounds like it's gonna slow things down even more. I don't even know when we'll be done with this iteration that you're um, talking about. And that's actually not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about adding more steps into a process that already takes too long. I'm talking about giving the teams the control necessary to pursue these outcomes directly instead of going through all of those steps and having to coordinate activity along the way. I'm talking about a fundamentally different process that starts with identifying the outcomes you're trying to achieve, 
identifying the problems that must be solved in order to achieve those outcomes for the customer and for the business, brainstorming solutions to those problems, and then iterating on those solutions until the outcomes are met. If you give the teams the uh, autonomy to pursue things this way, there's fewer steps and fewer levels of coordination and communication and permission and planning and project management and all of that. If you give them the resources within themselves to do all of this, they can move um, much faster. Speed, speed in getting to market with something that actually works, that actually solves the problem, that actually gets the results you want is greater than the efficient use of resources, which is usually the objection that I hear. Um, let me give you an example. Um, I worked with this company called Shopfully, and um, they were worried that after rapid um, explosive growth, that things were slowing as they hired more people. Sounds inevitable, right? You, as you hire more people, everything slows down. Well, not necessarily. What we ended up doing was separating the teams into three different divisions within the company, each one of which had its own separate goals that were complementary, that added up to success for the entire business, and each one of which had a dedicated team. And it cut down so much on the coordination and asking for permission and scheduling of resources that uh, their, their CEO, Stefano, said the new org had released new energies and clarified conflicts and ambiguities and allowed them to go much faster. They unlocked speed by unlocking ownership at the team level of the actual outcomes in the end. TripAdvisor has a similar kind of divisional um, focus, uh, a divisional organization. There are lots of companies that are going this way um, in the 21st century. Um, and this is how the seemingly or the formerly impossible um, becomes possible. I think my sort of unofficial definition or my working definition of product culture is a summary of those three ingredients. It's awesome teams pursuing big dreams one step at a time, delivering value one step at a time. Now, um, let's, let's Let's see if um, the, one of the early examples I started off with, Netflix, stands up to this model. Let's go through the, through the checklist of the three ingredients that I said. So the first ingredient was the vision. And Reed Hastings is very public about Netflix's vision of becoming the best global entertainment distribution service. Now, I'd love it if his vision had um, a more explicit call out to the customer, but it's implicit. The best global entertainment distribution service is us all Netflixing and chilling, right? That's, there's a reason, that's a phrase. Um, and they have some additional details to it, but that's their vision of just making entertainment available to us anytime, anywhere. And they arguably have set the standard, changed the game in terms of distribution of video. Amazon with Prime was a follower. Apple was uh, an even later follower. Um, they, um, they built a global um, and expanding business based on that vision. They also, going back to my friend Gib, had, and this is from a 2019 strategy deck that Gib shared with me, 
um, they had a strategy of building step by step to where they are today and into the future. Number one, during the blockbuster era, they actually, even though they had a long-term vision of being a global service and DVDs did not scale globally, they wanted to ride the wave of everyone's adoption of DVDs and get big there first and outcompete Blockbuster by delivering via the mail. And they did that. But then as bandwidth increased, especially internationally, they led the streaming business. They were the first and the biggest to go with streaming. And they were the first video streaming service that I signed up for. And that allowed them then to expand internationally because they were not gonna ship DVDs overseas. It was just impractical. And now at the time it was um, the next thing we were gonna do, but now it is the thing that they are doing, original content. And I'll let you in on a secret. Number five, according to that deck was um, interactive content. So that is maybe the next thing coming up um, from, from Netflix. So, okay, so that, I think they did a good job on two out of the three criteria, both the vision and the plan. And what about the team? Responsible people thrive on freedom and are worthy of being given that freedom. Their culture minimizes rules and maximizes the authority of people on the teams, building the products, getting to the outcomes to do what they think. So that's my, uh, my recipe in summary. You've got to have a vision, a compelling picture of a future world that's focused on amazing people doing awesome things. You've got to have a ladder of opportunities that you plan to um, have delivery of value um, at steps along the way to achieving that vision. And you've got to have a team that is not just smart, not just effective, not just um, uh, dedicated, not, or not just hardworking, but is dedicated dedicated to the mission. That's where the impossible outcomes come from. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.